Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference where we help you live your missionary discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. I hope that you're having a wonderful day. You can catch us here each week at the same time. And if you miss an episode of The Bridge Builder or if you want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find The Bridge Builder podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. We also answer your questions via our mailbag segment, and you can email those to show at mncatholic.org. And again, that's show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you could start laying the bricks that will build the bridge to bring faith into public life. Today's episode, we've got a variety of topics, but we're going to focus on migration and human trafficking and talk a little bit about how you can make a difference about those issues. Across the country, Catholics have just wrapped up National Migration Week which is an opportunity for the church to reflect on the circumstances confronting migrants, including immigrants, refugees, children, and victims and survivors of human trafficking. The work of assisting immigrants and refugees is not limited to just one week, however, and the need is growing as we currently face record levels around the world of displaced people uh, from their homelands. There are many great organizations and programs out there trying to assist those and accompany those who are migrants and refugees. And today we're focusing on the CARE program. CARE stands for Catholic Accompaniment and Reflection Experience. It's a pilot program out of uh, the San Francisco Archdiocese and the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. And it's run by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, Justice for Immigrants, and Migration Services Offices. So joining us today from the USCCB is Sarah Hoff. Sarah's a native Chicagoan who works at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and she's here to share a little bit more about this exciting program, this CARE program, and it's important to talk a little bit more about it because it's just one way in which Catholics are accompanying migrants and refugees, and it helps people understand what they can do. So we're glad to have Sarah Hoff on the show this morning. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a delight. We're so glad you joined us this morning. Tell us a little bit about uh, why the USCCB uh, initiated the CARE program and what it's all about. Pope Francis has really focused on a call to welcome immigrants and refugees. And in this time of uncertainty here in the U.S. with the current immigration system and changes that have been made to it with a lot of fear and anxiety that's kind of been developed within the immigrant community with people who have formerly not really been priorities for deportation now being at the forefront and being very concerned that they might end up just one day being separated from their families and really not knowing if that's going to happen or when that's going to happen or not. And so we took looking at the Pope's message and then the immigration reality currently in the U.S. and really wanted to create a program that um, Catholics just around the country can get involved in. There's always just been calls for, we see what's going on, but what can we do about it? And CARE is one way that Catholics can really address the Pope's call to welcome immigrants at this time. CARE is really, as you said earlier, a pilot program right now. So it's currently operating in um, the Archdiocese of San Francisco and also the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. And we're also actually 
just adding on a new pilot site, which is very exciting, in the Diocese of Camden. So we're going to be expanding there in the next couple months, which is really exciting. And so CARE is really committed to connecting Catholic volunteers and men and women religious with immigrant community members and their families who are really in need of accompaniment and emotional, social service, spiritual support, and whether that be when they're integrating into their communities or when they're possibly attempting to comply with immigration proceedings, such as um, they could be having to report to ICE check-ins or maybe attending an immigration hearing, and they really just need the support of the community. Sarah, I want to get back to this issue of the ICE check-ins in a moment, but mm-hmm. you, you mentioned the term accompaniment, and it's a lot. Of, it's a mm-hmm. term that we've heard a lot about during the pontificate of Pope Francis, and the, mm-hmm. the care program is rooted in a model of accompaniment, but it, maybe you could unpack a little bit more about what you know, your hopes are for in, incarnating, should we say, accompaniment. What does that look like on a practical day-to-day level? And you started yeah. to mention some of the activities, but what what is this? What does accompaniment mean, practically speaking, and how does the care program make that real? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so accompaniment, it really can, it can be a wide variety of things. It can just be being there and listening to someone's story, being there to support them in a time of need, walking alongside them in their journey, whether that be through just in life in general or trying to navigate the complex immigration, U.S. immigration system. Some concrete things, you could provide a ride to someone if they need to go to like the doctor's office or one of their ICE check-ins, especially if they're undocumented and they don't have a driver's license, that could be a way you can accompany someone. You could also hold Know Your Rights training. You could also educate others around different immigration policies. You can do letter writing campaigns if someone is in a deportation proceeding and rally around them to show community support. And you can also maybe even just hold a prayer vigil for someone and just for the system that we're in right now to express that there is a need for change. So there's a variety of things, and it can be small things. It doesn't have to be, I know for some people it might be scary to think, oh, to maybe go with someone to an ICE office, and that might be daunting, but there are small things that you can do to work your way up to that, or if you don't feel comfortable with that, you can just listen to someone and share their stories, and that's the way of also providing accompaniment. So accompaniment, you might say, is really just a practical instantiation of the ethic of solidarity, really. And it, and exactly. It, and it can mm-hmm. be as easy as sitting with someone and listening to their story and hearing their struggles, or it can be organizing a prayer vigil outside an ICE detention center, mm-hmm. accompanying someone to a hearing. That's really great, and thank you for providing those practical examples. We're speaking with Sarah Hoff from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, who runs the National Care Program, which stands for Catholic Accompaniment and Reflection Experience. And we're hearing more from Sarah about what that is doing in the Archdiocese of San Francisco and the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. I think this issue of the ICE check-ins is a great way of understanding what undocumented immigrants are experiencing and the care materials that can be found on their website you know, share a little bit about personal stories of people going through ICE check-ins. But just for listeners out there who don't really know what, how these things actually work, what is what is this process by which someone has to check in with ICE? Why do they get caught up in this system? Say a little bit more mm-hmm. about that, just to maybe our listeners can get a little glimpse of inside the life of an undocumented person. Yeah. So a lot of times, I mean, 
if this undocumented individual is um, known to ICE, they might have to check in with ICE, which is they have to go to the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, one of their field offices, and um, it could be every month. It might even be, I mean, it really depends, bi-monthly, depends on the person and kind of what ICE decides. So they have to go to the office and kind of check in with them to, so ICE can be aware of where they're living, who they're living with, what their situation is, if anything's changed, so they can just keep tabs on them, really. But every time an individual goes to this ICE check-in, it's really full of uncertainty because the individual oftentimes doesn't know if they might be arrested at this time or they might be put into detention at this time. And it's really kind of a big gamble. They don't know, if, okay, I'm going to this. I don't know if this is going to be the last time that I might see my family. I don't really know what the outcome will be. So it's oftentimes full of anxiety. So if people in the community are able to go with them, it can help kind of ease that anxiety a little bit and also show ICE officials that, yes, this person is a loved person in the community. They are supported by the community, and that can also really help them. So someone in the community might think, well, why aren't these people just being deported if they're undocumented mm-hmm. or here illegally? And, and that's because they've received some sort of stay of deportation or they're not an ICE enforcement priority. Is that correct, Sarah? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So say a little bit about when you create these programs, uh, the CARE program in the Archdiocese of San Francisco and the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, what does that look like practically from the standpoint of how do you start it? How do you kick it off? How do you engage Mm -hmm. Catholics in the pew? How are Catholics in the pew getting involved in the CARE Mm -hmm. program? Yeah, that's a great question. Both Archdiocese, the program acts a little differently just depending on the situation on the ground and what is kind of the pressing pressing issue. In the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, we're really focusing on that accompaniment model and the support of mostly undocumented individuals and their families, whether that be going to ICE check-ins or hearings or if they just need to be connected to support services throughout the communities. And in the Archdiocese of San Francisco, they have a large population of unaccompanied minors in their care, and so they work a lot with them. And so when our, the program there is more focused on a mentorship model for unaccompanied minors where we match Catholic volunteers with an unaccompanied minor, and they kind of work with them and can kind of, if they need help with getting registered for school or finding out what, what can I do after, like, high school, what are my options? Like, we have one matched pair there who the woman is looking into nursing schools. And so her mentor is helping her kind of look up nursing programs, schedule visits to these places. And so really just helping them to fully integrate in the community there. So they are a little, they are different depending on the situation of kind of what the immigration reality is, but they're all in a general sense, all different ways that you can accompany people. How many, uh, of the lay faithful are involved in each program in the pilot diocese. Are you aware of that number by chance? Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but we have, especially well in the archdiocese in Indianapolis, we put together what are called parish teams. And so we each parish that wants to be involved, they can have whoever wants to sign up to join that team can do so. I don't know the exact number of how many individuals, but there are um, 
currently, I think, five parish teams that are underway there. And so they can have people sign up and create different, if they want to be, someone will be like the team lead there. And because, I mean, not everyone can be available at all hours of the day to do these accompaniments. And oftentimes, if it's like an ICE check-in, these are happening during a weekday, during work hours. And so having these teams there is a way that we can, it can kind of spread out the time and really ensure that everybody can get the support that they need. And then in San Francisco, the mentorship, I think there's, there's over, um, we have over 10 matches so far, and we're working to do more. And they also have a leadership academy there that they do for the unaccompanied minors. And they've had two so far. The last one they had had a little, I think it was over 15 unaccompanied minors participated. They did lessons around mental health, which is really important, and how to care about yourself. And so it's been really great so far. You mentioned a lot of things that can encompass uh, accompaniment and things that are happening on the ground in the pilot diocese. But what have you discovered have been the biggest needs uh, that people are facing? What are the, the key ones since the program got off the ground? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the biggest need is just people really just want to feel supported and that their lives and their stories are important and that they have that support from the church and that they're not walking alone through navigating this process. And I think that's really important, That and they feel the backing of the church behind them. That's really what I found is kind of the most needed and also the most, um, what people say back, is really the greatest thing that they get from it. That's great. Even beyond the material needs and challenges mm-hmm. and legal challenges, it's that... Uh, sense of someone walking together with them and mm-hmm. the church that walking. they have a community that they can rely on. Yeah. It's really great. That's beautiful. You're listening to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and today we're speaking with Sarah Hoff of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, who runs the CARE program, and she's sharing a little bit more about that with us. Uh, a part of that, Sarah, is the reflection and experience. Um, the, the people who are involved serving and accompanying uh, migrants uh, there's a there's a reflective dimension to it. They're processing how this is impacting them and transforming them. Can you say a little bit more about uh, the experience from the standpoint of those who are serving in the program and mm-hmm. what they're taking away and how they're being transformed? Yeah. So on the other side of it, so we have who the program is serving, but also we have those who are the volunteers. And the really great thing about CARE is on the other side, the volunteers are able to kind of hear these people's stories and their trials that they've gone through. And they also can really learn about the U.S. immigration system and see the more human side and human impact of that system. And so it creates different avenues for education and learning around the U.S. immigration system. The diversity of the modern Catholic church and the parish life that is there. And also you can, they can learn about the Catholic social teaching and how it talks about how every person, you need to recognize that human dignity in them. And it also, just to, to learn about that and how the Catholic faith, faith is really central and the central points on that, um, some central points on that is the solidarity and accompaniment are very important. 
in many cases, as we know here in Minnesota, immigration and refugee resettlement has really changed the dynamics in certain communities. And I think certain native populations feel overwhelmed and there's pushback against refugee resettlement. We had a county here just vote to uh, deny any future refugee resettlements in their county. What can uh, the CARE program or do you have any experience with the way in which uh, the program or um, there are initiatives out there that we can work on or pay attention to that can unify populations Mm -hmm. or people who are feeling abandoned, you know, with so much attention, especially in the church being paid to migrants and refugees. Some people feel left behind. Is there any way the church, from your perspective, can help unify all those who reside in a community, whether they're facing uh, influx of refugees from the Middle East or mm-hmm. um, migrants from Central America. What, what are your thoughts on that, Sarah? I know that's a tough question. Just providing that opportunity for discussion and dialogue is really important to hear what people's concerns are, what their fears are, what their trepidations are about maybe having an increased immigrant population come into a community and hearing both sides of the story can really help um, mitigate those fears. And if people can really see that these individuals are people and that they have lives and stories and histories, and that can really help kind of mitigate that fear when it's no longer just a faceless person or group. I think that can really help bring everyone together. Mm-hmm. One thing I didn't ask you about, Sarah, that I, it's pretty compelling that the CARE program is working, especially with unaccompanied children. Um, mm-hmm. What does that look like? Is that just helping them reconnect with a family member locally? Or what are the special needs mm-hmm. of unaccompanied children? And, and what is CARE program yeah. doing in that regard? Mm-hmm. So we work with them usually after they've been connected to um, a family member or, I mean, sometimes they don't have family here, but oftentimes they have some relatives who are here. And so really just working with them, because it would be, it's a totally different community and culture that they're being put into, the history that they've gone through, the travels and the tribulations to get to where they are now, is a lot to handle, especially when you're just a child. And so care really kind of works. We have that one-on-one mentorship model. So it can be tailored specifically to every child and what their needs are and the volunteer kind of works with them to see what do they what are they passionate about what do they want to work on and what what are their needs it could be kind of helping them get connected to after school programs maybe they're really passionate about sports and it could be finding them like a soccer league that they want to join or if they're passionate about music maybe joining a music class so things like that to really make them feel that they're important that they are a supported member of the community. Sarah, is the CARE program looking to expand to other dioceses? Yeah, so we're always looking to expand and share the the CARE model out to different locations. So we current, as I said earlier, we have um, the Archdiocese of San Francisco, the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, who were the original pilot sites, and we're also now bringing on the Diocese of Camden, and so we're expanding to them starting this year, which is very exciting. And so, yeah, you can um, go on to the Justice for Immigrants website, so justiceforimmigrants.org, and find all the resources on CARE, and we have a CARE program toolkit on there that takes you through if you were interested in maybe 
starting a parish team or how do I get involved in accompaniment and some of these things, you can um, take a look at that and it'll give you some um, good information on how you can get that started. And also just the JFI website in general has a lot of great information on if anyone's confused about certain immigration topics or what does the Catholic Church's, what's the Catholic Church's view on these things, it's a really great place to look. Thank you for that, Sarah. And, and for the listeners, Justice for Immigrants is a ministry dedicated to migrants uh, of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. So again, justiceforimmigrants.org, and we'll have that on our show page linked there as well. We've been joined today by Sarah Hoff. She runs the Catholic Accompaniment Reflection and Experience, the Care, Fro- Care Program. Uh, out of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is a pilot program that's operating in the Archdiocese of San Francisco and the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, and will start up soon in the Diocese of Camden, New Jersey. Sarah, we're grateful for your work and grateful for Justice for Immigrants and MRS Office of the USCCB for all the work you're doing to assist migrants and refugees. God bless your work, and thanks for being on the Bridge Builder Show today. Thanks so much for having me. Great, and we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now we delve into our mailbag segment to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what have you got for the mailbag today? Yeah, so here in Minnesota, and really even around the country, there's a lot of varied efforts to control or ban pornography. Oftentimes we'll even hear about declaring it as a public health crisis. And when bills like these arise, we are often seeing questions arising that ask, well, isn't a ban on pornography? Is that attacking free speech? And is the government just trying to legislate morality? Is that the case, Jason? And what is the Minnesota Catholic Conference doing with regard to pornography in our state? Well, legislative efforts around pornography hit stagnation in the mid-90s, 1990s, due to court cases that upheld uh, pornography as free speech and strengthened the, its foothold within the First Amendment, which uh, is deeply unfortunate. Uh, some people say, well, you know, if we ban pornography, we're defending free speech. Well, that's really a modern, particularly modern post-1960s view of free speech. We had the First Amendment throughout, uh, <laughs> since our country was founded and the Constitution was enacted in 1787, and for 200 years people didn't believe pornography was free speech. But you have an interesting debate, particularly in conservative circles today, around whether or not it's legitimate to ban pornography. Is this free speech? Is this just part of a free society that we have to deal with? And I think the perspective of some is that if pornography is considered free speech and is just one of the, quote, blessings of freedom that we have to deal with, then something has gone wrong and something is amiss. There's a big, uh, there has been a big debate in the uh, public square especially in the media uh, over the past couple months about uh, regulations on pornography. But what's interesting is there's an emerging left-right dynamic around uh, pornography. There's a recognition that what what is uh, being produced today is of a different kind than the, the magazines, per se, of the, the past few decades. It, it's a different—the pornography today is violent, 
misogynistic in many instances, well, in all instances, but really troubling dynamic. And as one legislator said, when we um, uh, worked to get enacted uh, a bill connecting pornography and human trafficking a couple of years ago, uh, this is not your quote unquote father's pornography, which is a, a bad way of saying it. But it's it's a really we've reached a new level of depravity with what's going on out there. And so even on the left and the right, there's a new interest in looking at pornography, and, and some have described it as a public health crisis, simply because we know its impacts on the brain, we know its impacts on on young people's de- personal development, sexual health, sexual development, uh, and sexual identity even in many instances as well. And it's a particularly troubling dynamic. So what you're seeing is a rethinking uh, on both left and right uh, because of the way in which pornography is connected to human trafficking. Um, and uh, oftentimes people who are trafficked, and what we mean by that is when people are trafficked, they're also involved in the production of pornography as well. Um, pornography stimulates a demand uh, for human trafficking. So there's a real crisis here with regard to what pornography is, the way it's produced, how it's produced, who's involved in it. It's always uh, to say that the people consent to be in pornography is a denuded understanding of consent. And so what you're seeing is a rethinking of the issue in all quarters. The question is how to do it in light of court cases, again, that consider it free speech. Even here in Minnesota, the Minnesota Court of Appeals just struck down the state's so-called revenge porn law, which seems to be utterly strange that something like that couldn't be regulated when people non-consensually post pornographic images and videos of others on the internet or in other places. How that could be speech is uh, one struggles to understand, quite frankly. So is it legislating morality? All law is legislating morality because law deals with questions of the good and what should we do and how ought we live together. So all those questions are inherently moral. So law is going to regulate and legislate morality. The question is which morals and which principles is it going to be built on? And so the question is, yes, can we do something about it? Yeah, but we have to figure out ways in which we can strategically limit and mitigate the effects of pornography in our communities and do so consistent with current court cases. But hopefully those court cases get overturned over the long haul. So there needs to be a broader cultural rethinking around these questions. Ultimately, when the demand for pornography ceases in our culture, then the laws will likely catch up with that as politics and law tend to be downstream of culture. And maybe judges will feel more comfortable upholding restrictions on pornography that are legislatively enacted. But of course, it starts in our homes. We can't deny that. We need to be protecting our children. We need to be protecting our own eyes from these vices and the things that are deeply corrosive on our own souls and the life of faith. But we also have to remember, to the extent that we're consuming pornography, it's we're participating in the exploitation and the commodification of other human beings. And that's something deeply troubling. And as we'll talk about in a moment, also is connected to a migration issue, particularly the issue of human trafficking. Thank you, Jason, for really diving into that. And of course, it wouldn't be the Bridge Builder Show if we didn't give you those ways to start laying the bricks to build the bridge. So this is our bricklayer segment. Jason, what have you got for us this week? So in light of that discussion about pornography and human trafficking, January is National Human Trafficking Awareness Month. Uh, Minnesota is a leader in combating human trafficking. We have the Safe Harbor Program, which has regional offices throughout the state that assist trafficking victims. Minnesota Catholic Conference has partnered with organizations such as Breaking Free, which helps women escape systems of prostitution and sexual exploitation. The USCCB, uh, 
and we spoke with someone from USCCB earlier, has the SHEPARD program, which stands for Stop Human Trafficking and Exploitation, Protect, Help, Empower, and Restore Dignity. And that program is geared at helping to combat forced labor and commercial sexual exploitation at the local level. And especially February 8th is World Day of Prayer, Reflection, and Action Against Human Trafficking. It's also the feast day of St. Josephine Baquita. So really some opportunities over the course of this month to deepen our awareness of human trafficking. It's a reality here in Minnesota. We might not see it in our communities, but indeed it's prevalent. So looking into what's going on with human trafficking, the way it's connected to sexual violence and exploitation, the commodification of human persons. So maybe learn a little bit more about the issue and connect yourself perhaps with an organization locally that's assisting trafficking victims. The Sisters of St. Joseph and St. Paul have been assisting trafficking victims. We mentioned Breaking Free as well, and there are a number of other organizations around the state that are doing important work protecting victims of human trafficking. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but remember you or your organization can become a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. By doing so, you help others bring the Catholic faith into public life. For more opportunities and information, email us at show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. You can use that same email address to send us your comments or questions for our mailbag or connect with us on social media. And remember, you can catch up with any past episodes of The Bridge Builder by visiting our webpage, mncatholic.org slash podcast or find us on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, have a blessed weekend.